0: I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field.
1: Leinster
2: could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. Robbie <laughs> Robbie Weekly. The first pass, go! Go! Oh! Drive Magic Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here as always. This podcast is brought to you in association with William Hill. Remember to gamble responsibly and visit DonLouie.net on more information. Murray Kinsella my colleague joins me as always Murray how's the week going how are you keeping
0: not too bad I was off on Monday so the week's been kind of weird I feel like I'm chasing my tail and will be until everything kicks off again with the Six Nations on Saturday but loads to look forward to this weekend loads of rugby happening at the moment all around the world really so I'm enjoying watching as much of it as I possibly can
2: <laughs> brilliant Bernard Jackman you're here too and uh, delighted to have you on as always how is your week going how are you keeping
1: yeah, really good, really good. Again, uh, like Murray, I'm not, I'm not as, as into the Japanese, uh, championship as as he seems to be. But I'm enjoying the the little clips he's shown. Um, some some great skill, and yeah, Super Rugby, Super Rugby being back is is great. And yeah, I was lucky enough. I was in Belfast on uh, on Saturday night for for Ulster Leinster. So, um, and I'm doing Leinster Zebra this weekend. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm actually getting to. Uh, well, I'm not I'm not going to Italy obviously, but Zebra. Answer, but uh probably in studio um but yeah it was nice to get in the car and just drive last weekend to Belfast for for the game
2: with the benefit of a few days to mull over that game Bernard that you did last weekend what do you make now of Andrew Warwick's red card and he's gotten a two- game suspension two meaningful game suspension in the interim just before we we started recording uh Jimmy O'Brien's yellow card as well can I ask you about that and, and sort of the I guess your interpretation of both of them uh and the fact that O'Brien thus far hasn't been cited as a result yeah. of that hit on ian madigan
1: yeah i, I thought to be honest look i can see why warwick's is a red um i can see how it could be given as a red if you're gonna you know really be uh, vigilant and strict on, on on the laws um i, I think jimmy's is probably a red you know given what i'm seeing uh in other leagues um it's not you know there's no intention there but it doesn't matter if you have a head clash i mean i thought the the mitigation was really interesting the fact that madigan was jumping and um, was used as mitigation Um which if you're jumping you should be higher um you know so how high would you hit him if he, he hadn't have been but anyway look at they haven't cited him um unfortunately game it's difficult for frank murphy at the moment i think he's he's struggling a little bit he's, he's in a bit of a dip which referees and players and coaches all have so he's just hopefully he bounces back and um yeah, it was a tough game for him. Uh, the way it unfolded, and uh, I, I, look, I think Leinster were incredible. I mean, Ulster obviously had a phenomenal start, um, but even without a red card, I think Leinster w- would have won. They're just so clinical, uh, no matter who plays, um, and yeah, they just dug in, turned a corner, and were really impressive. And 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 their 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 play five yards out is it's phenomenal it's actually to be honest it's actually boring um as a spectacle and i think you know people are talking around oh time takes to to get scrum set at least you can have a really good scrum contest the way it's gone at the moment if you get 5 yards out um you're pretty much nearly guaranteed to score as long as you stay patient because if you look at teams like Leinster, they just basically pick and go pick and go pick and go until they get a penalty advantage and then they I think what they're doing is really, really shrewd. Actually, they don't go to wits unless they can actually just score, like a hundred percent score. They just keep picking and going on a penalty advantage, and um, what that does is it, it just really fatigues the defense. Um, whereas Ulster during that game, you know, they had t- times when they were under on, on Leinster line. They had a penalty advantage, and they went, they went out to the edges and didn't score. And then, obviously, the referee calls it back for the penalty. And I think that just gives the defence a chance to get set again. And you have to restart all over again. So, it'll be interesting if teams, you know, copy Leinster. Um, and, at first, Leinster can do it better than everybody else because of the power um, and the fitness levels, which seem to be at a, at a level above everyone else, to be honest. Even their, their, their backup players can come in and, and seem to play at a higher level. And I think, to be honest, the reason for that is the level of the quality of training. You know, so effectively they're getting harder training sessions than uh, games, and the the team we saw play the other night or the other night, yeah, the other night on Saturday. I mean, they're used to training against the Irish team, effectively in 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 Donnybrook, <laughs> and uh, so they're going to get better through that. Whereas, you know, you know, I'm not saying Ulster Munster don't have strong squads, but certainly when you go into the other teams in the Pro Fourteen at the moment, um, they wouldn't have anything like the depth that that the Irish provinces have. So hence. The Irish provinces, the four of them are at the top of um, both conferences. And, uh, yeah, it's a little bit one-sided.
2: Murray, I don't want to keep going back to those decisions. They're well-worn at this point. But because we haven't heard from you yet this week, you mentioned you were off on Monday. What did you make of Warwick's red, uh, O'Brien's non-sending off? And then I'll ask you as well about your thoughts on what Bernard was saying about Leinster there.
0: Yeah, I thought you and Owen had a really good chat about it on the members pod on Monday. Um there's so many cards. Yeah, go through them. I thought Devin Toner's was the yellow. I know it was a really unfortunate circumstance that the tallest guy on the pitch tackles the smallest guy on the pitch and there's massive height differential, but he, his arm swings into his face and, and we know that that's not acceptable in the game now. I thought that was that was fair enough. I did agree that Jimmy O'Brien's was a red card. For me, it was exactly like all the reds we've seen in those instances and Bernard mentioned the the jump there. That's not really a mitigating circumstance in in my mind. I thought there was a bit of force in it again i don't think the intent from jimmy o'brien was to head bottom in any way but they came together in that manner and we've seen other people punished with a red for that for that the the actual red card itself again i can understand that's what referees have been told to get out of the game any neck or head contact with a leading elbow away from the body and as Owen described on monday it is a technical red card but th- the onus now is on the players to absolutely nail their technique and it's tough on them, certainly. But with an instance like that, you've got to be nailed on technically that your arm is really flush against your body and it's braced there rather than out in front. And again, I know how tough that is in split second when you're trying to be aggressive with your carry, but I felt that that was, that was the right decision, really. Um, so yeah, for me, the the O'Brien one was was probably the big one that was was a miss there. The other yellow cards for the... Penalty infringements, I can totally understand. Again, McCloskey near the try line. I do have sympathy for him because it it did look like blocking just before that where where Max O'Reilly goes through and and Marcel Coetzee is denied access to a tackle by Scott Penny, I think it is. So he's really frustrated with that. But beyond that, his his offence near the try line was worthy of a yellow, as were the other ones for, I suppose, the repeated infringements. We've seen those. It was an incredible circumstance with the number of yellows um, and those incidents. But I suppose the big one that stood out for me was it was the O'Brien one, and, and I'm surprised that we didn't hear, or haven't heard more about that even since the game. What about the
1: Ballard-Clune try? Or non-try?
0: Yeah, I actually felt that was a tough call. Um, I can see what what he was thinking in terms of, yeah, there's contact between the players there, but for me, the decision is made by Ruddock, and I think he can actually get out um, and and make that tackle. I, I, listen, yes, there's contact there, and it's ahead of the ball. McCluskey has run ahead of Balakoon, but, of Balakoon, but, I think he can do more. I think he makes a decision to bite down on the line. I think it's well-timed from Ulster in that regard. Um, and yeah, f- for me, it was a, a tough call. I think you agreed. I, I Yeah, no, I, I agree. Think I, 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 I think tough. that
1: that wasn't, uh, 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 like, actually, Balakoon took the ball so far behind um, the, the the decoy as well. There was time absolutely to, to adjust. So, I think where Reese got caught I think he can easily push off there. Uh, not easily, but he can push off. And I think, you know, I think the referee can give the tact the benefit of the doubt uh, in, in that situation. But just going back to my, my talk around, my, my point around the five yard out stuff. I think the referees are only refereeing the defensive side there. Um, I mean, it's it's impossible. It's next to impossible to go 25 phases without sealing off or. Um are going off your feet on the on the clean out or um the ball carrier not releasing uh, instantly. And at the moment there's a trend, and this isn't just the Pro 14 or whatever. You watch Exeter you know executing it really well. Lots of teams are very good at it. But I, I think that if, if teams had the same clean-out technique um further out the field, they'd get pinged quicker. But it's like once a team enter that area, the referees are Really conscious of giving having an easy out for the defensive side, um. So that's something that maybe they need to look at because it only gets really like you don't want you. Know, it, I don't mind picking goals um at all, and obviously it's a really good area opportunity for teams to show, you know, good um uh, patience, technique, power, etc. But if there's an opportunity to throw two passes and score, you know, obviously you'd like him to be able to go there as well um and mix it up and not have four or five minutes camped on the line you Know four or five times a game, um, whereas I think at the moment, because players know that if they're just patient, the referee will give a penalty against the defending team, um, and then they have a penalty advantage and then they have a choice. That, um, if that if the referees started to pick up a little bit on on that on the offensive side, I think you know it'd be good for the game, it'd be more risk taking,
0: yeah. The latch work is. It's gone to a new level, obviously in terms of its effectiveness, but I think there's more being missed than ever, and this even applies to the Six Nations. I think of Wales's try against Scotland. If you go have a look at that one, the Win Jones one, where you've got guys like clearly ahead of the ball coming from a couple of meters outside and and latching in front of them. Um, you saw Scotland complaining about it at one stage, and now even with the five meter tap penalties, guys are latching on straight away as soon as the hooker taps the ball, um, and it has to be officially a hooker to tap that ball. I can't wait to see someone else. Maybe Sam Simmons is, is the other one who's good at it. Um, but it is it is happening an awful lot and, and something that probably needs a little bit more attention. Um, just on the game itself, it is a shame the Red w- came at the time it did because obviously that Balakoon try was exceptional from Ulster and, and showed what they've been doing in the last couple of weeks with some of their offloading, with players making really good decisions. And a nice finish from him. Balakun looks really sharp since his return. I'm excited about his potential. He's, what, 23 now? But a serious athlete, really good learner, really diligent and makes excellent decisions in defence generally. He's good in the air as well. And I just think he has so much more potential. I'd love to see Balakun back in the Ireland mix at some stage because I think he can keep improving. Um, and that score showed what Ulster are all about. Really lovely team try. And just a pity that we probably didn't get to see more of that contest um, after the red card. But yeah, an interesting couple of weeks now for Ulster. Leinster kind of are building up for that final. Ulster have a few dead rubbers before their European tie, which is a pity. And I know Dan McFarland's frustrated about that. And he'd be obviously frustrated about the circumstances of this game last weekend.
2: Just to ask you, Marie, about what Bernard was saying there about Leinster's kind of ground and pound approach from the five, particularly when they have an advantage. Is there a a danger of uh, kind of using that to your detriment eventually in that the more you do of that and the less you go wide, uh, the probably the harder you'll find it to go wide, you know, just purely through muscle memory and and how often you're doing it. And maybe that if there are teams that can't stand up to them up front, there are probably only three or four in Europe, but I'm talking about in the latter stages of European competition, if somebody can uh, repel them on the line. You know, like they, they they may be out of practice almost in in being more clinical in going wide, popping those two passes and taking a try. Like, or, or am I kind of over overcomplicating it a bit? Is it a basic enough skill to to go wide, even if this is the approach for now to keep it narrow and bash it up the middle?
0: Yeah, like if there's an opportunity wide, I think Leinster definitely have the skill set and the decision making ability. I think to to go there and take it. We know they can strike from deep, and listen, their game is very much against most opponents, as you say, based on overpowering, fatiguing them. And, and that's a good strategy when it's when it's successful, when you can do that against teams you're physically more dominant than um, and who you can outlive in terms of those long passages. But I think Leinster have shown an ability to be a bit more um, varied in their approach. That's their strength, I think, is that they can play a number of different ways um, and they score some outstanding tries in in most games really or or the build up play to get into that position on the five metre line is a brilliant set piece play that draws a penalty or a nice tip on pass the interplay between the forwards is good at times um, and I think they're a a varied force I think with the most recent Saracens one it was probably just the scrum was a disaster that day Um, and that was the deciding of the match if we're being realistic about it Um, against the very best teams you're probably not going to get the chances to throw the ball with a couple more passes, to get to width, certainly against a team like Saracens, with their defensive strength. It's not a case of not being able to do it with your own skill set. It's often a case of you just don't get those opportunities. So well, like, I can see your point, absolutely. You want to be well-practiced in that more wide approach or a higher passing rate and and getting chains of passes across the back line. I do think Leinster probably work on those skills and someone like Stuart Lancaster will always be pressing home to them that there's an opportunity and a decision-making responsibility for the players to, to identify those chances.
2: Yeah, Birch, not to labour the point, and maybe I didn't even word it uh, as best as I could have, but uh, uh, with Lancaster or somebody like that, there probably is no danger really of what I'm asking, but... You know, if it is a a kind of a stylistic thing or it is a mindset, maybe then it's not even the case that you lose the skills to be able to throw the the couple of passes out wide, but maybe that you don't see that opportunity. And we might have seen that with Ireland a little bit in recent years as well. Like just the the idea that you can be kind of married of a way of breaking the breaching the line, if you like, and that maybe the sort of more peripheral stuff gets a little bit lost or a little bit more muddied in the mind.
1: Oh, look, it's definitely a worry for Leinster um, that they haven't been able to transfer the dominance they have in the domestic competition to, to the Champions Cup, and and um, you know obviously the draws out now. Um, but I, and I think they do look and, and and try and make sure they're ahead of the curve, and I think they are. Even in this tactic, they're ahead of the curve really because they are belligerent in in that area, and they they're so smart that they get more of those opportunities than, than other teams. Um, but I think Stuart Lancaster and, and Neil Cullin and Felipe Conteponi will certainly be looking at, maybe not, well, they'll be looking at Toulon, obviously, but that they're not probably the, the test that they need. It's, it's, it's probably Exeter um, is where any little creeks or any, any um, areas where you've been probably over-reliant or, you know, just used sheer power because that's where you have it um that's where you have an advantage in in the domestic league when you come up against likes of Toulouse, exeter um racing metro you know for me they're the three top teams plus leinster they're the top four, four teams in, in europe this year um that's maybe when you need to have other strings to your bow. but i i do think i agree with murray i think it's very hard to to judge them on the Saracens game because we didn't get to see any of the other stuff that they do well, uh, just because there was one area of weakness that um, became their Achilles heel in that, in, in that game. But uh, I I think look at I I think they've got a great coaching staff. They've got a um, yeah a brilliant group, and and, I, and I, I'm fascinated to see how they develop in how they go in Europe this year. Plus the Rainbow Cup, if that happens, you know, um, because they they won't outpower um the Bulls, you know what I mean? Um so again, I think that'll be really good for, for their evolution in terms of trying to um find ways of beating different type of opposition because let's be honest, uh they're completely dominant. I mean if, if it was a golf they'd have the you know they'd have to have a handicap in, in the in the domestic league. You know that's the only way of <laughs> of, of no but seriously like we never talk about that and, and that's the reality of of how dominant they are in that competition uh at, at the moment. To go whatever it is, you know Three seasons. I don't know how many games they've lost. Um, you know, with the rotation they do, it's it's it's, it's phenomenal. And I'll t- there's one guy, and I text Murray about it yesterday. Michael Bent is absolutely crucial to Leinster in this in the Pro 14. Um, you know, you lose Porter and Tyke Furlong uh, to international rugby, and they're gone a lot. And Michael Bent, I know he's probably not going to be there next year, but just his ability to to give to win scrum penalties is a huge part of how they play because. You know they are very rigid in how they move up the field, and um, you know he, he was missing for a couple of weeks, and you know they conceded three tries against Glasgow, and they conceded a lot of points away to Dragons, um, and that's understandable of young props trying to find their way. But Bent is probably one of the most improved players in Ireland, and I know he gets a raw deal because of the circumstances in which he got capped and stuff, or not doesn't get a raw deal, but gets you know uh, doesn't probably get the credit he deserves. But I think he's been an unbelievable stalwart for, for Len Stern, and he'd be missed.
0: Just just briefly back to, to your point though, Gav. You're right in what you're getting at in that. That's the challenge. They're dominant in every match. It's about making sure that you're not complacent enough to think that that's going to work. Say it is that Exeter game, which it looks like being. Toulon, Toulon are a good side, obviously, but Leinster would really fancy themselves to win at home. And that's a massive game against Exeter where every single decision you make is magnified. If you think about the previous Saracens game in the final in Newcastle and where Gary Ringrose doesn't pass the ball when they have that overlap on the right-hand side just after half-time. And not to pick on him, but it is a massively crucial part of the game and, and that non-decision, I suppose. Um, and yeah, there have been a number of instances of that from Ireland, even in the France game. And you think of Ringrose even putting his hand up afterwards and saying, you know, I may needed to make better decisions there. So maybe in the most intense pressure, there is a, a little bit of a theme there um, about Irish players not going of nailing those decisions um, and that's definitely one for them to be cognizant of um, and to keep identifying those opportunities and to keep giving players the autonomy and a bit of responsibility to to make them
2: I knew you could word it better than me Murray that was what I was trying to get at we got there in the <laughs> end there's a, a question here from Emmett and it's in relation to the Rainbow Cup actually that you mentioned a, a while ago Bernard uh, he says let me see now how should the provinces approach the Rainbow Cup uh, should they go at it fully and give the international lads a chance to get into Lions uh, slash summer tour squads, or should they rotate and give fringe guys minutes to develop? I'll throw that one to yourself, Birch.
1: Yeah, look, well, I think it would be really important that some of our internationals play. Um, uh, you know, they're going into a really busy period now where they go um, Scotland, England, uh, Pro 14 final for for certainly the monster players. We'll see what Leinster do. And then into Europe. um, uh, And so it's, it's a block. But they also had a rest week last week. Um, they didn't play around three and four of, of Europe. Um, So I think there's plenty of scope left in terms of game management time for our, our internationals to play some of the Rainbow Cup for sure. But also, you know, for the next crop, you know, look at that Leinster team who played the other night. I mean, you know, they're missing so many, but th- that's a quality team. Um, You know, Scott Fardy, Devin Toner, in the second row. You've reached for look, Josh Van der Fleer, played six nations then you have scott penny like um you know james tracy you know um you know you've ed byrne who's been in the six nation squad so like it's there's lots of there's lots of quality there so i think the, the, the teams the squads we see week in week out for for the four provinces are are uh, more than good enough to to go and, and, and play against the the best um south african teams and still Still manage to give players rest when when they need it, or if they have an Eagles look after them. But um, yeah, I think I think it's important that this competition works for us, um, uh, it, and, and not just for our provinces for our international rugby. I think it's really important we have a, a competition that's more testing, um, and can help us judge, you know, the next best crop. Because if let's be honest, the reason we a lot of people are kicking up about Andy Farrell not picking players because they're comparing it to the French, who have picked you know likes a Jali Bear, etc um with less experience but unfortunately here at the moment it, it's really we judge players on whether they play european cup or not um whereas imagine we had you know uh, you know a, a better more competitive uh, domestic competition which we will have with these four teams it'll definitely add to it plus a european cup but just i think it gives you know the likes of harry Byrne, etc um more opportunities to prove whether they're international quality or not so uh I'm excited by it and I, and I think it's really important that we treat it properly and when when possible to play our frontline players.
2: One last question on the provinces. I'll throw it to yourself, Murray. Just because we haven't touched upon the Monster Connacht game so much there. Now, bear in mind, uh, people at home, if you're not a member of the 42, we, we do a Monday morning review podcast as well, Rugby Weekly Extra, membersthe e. if you want to join us there for that one. But... Is there anything you've seen in Munster or you saw in Munster over the weekend that would suggest that in this Pro 14 final against Leinster, things can be any different to the way they have been in the past 378 meetings between the province or whatever it's been, where Leinster have been uh, either way too good or just about good enough, as we saw more recently?
0: Um, in that game, probably pr- probably not. I mean, a lovely individual try from Mike Haley, a moment like that can absolutely swing one of the games against Leinster. You're probably not going to get that opportunity in a final against them, but if a player can produce something like that, absolutely. And in fairness to Mike Ailey, he had a number of moments like that in the game and has been really excellent. Also, you you look at Joey Carberry coming off the bench again. That There's a bit of a difference from the, the most recent couple of games. And he got a little bit longer. Again, he looked comfortable. Physically, he looks really good. And Johan McGrath mentioned he's had this extended period. You can see his upper body. He's just stronger and hopefully a little bit more robust as well. And definitely he's going to get a start in the next couple of weeks. And I'll be shocked if he's not starting that Pro 14 final. um And they have a, a crack off in, in that way. Coupled with the fact that it's going to be the week after the Six Nations. And Leinster, I would imagine, will probably have a greater element of mixing and matching in their team after guys playing number uh, sorry. Two back-to-back tests, um, and both coaches have said that that might be the case, which is a bit crazy, really, for a decider. Um, but in terms of how they played, n- not exactly. And I honestly, I honestly don't foresee Munster trying to do a whole whole amount different from what they've done the last couple of occasions against Leinster. They, they they feel they were really close, and that a couple of things, marginal things, as they say, just didn't go quite their way. Um, and they'll feel that if they can have a similar mix with just a little bit more quality, that that they'll finally turn that around um, and it feels like a good chance to do it I guess the week after Six Nations the week before Europe it's really strangely placed in that in that sense and selection is going to be massive um, but God it's a really good opportunity for Munster to end the, the decade long drought
1: Can you just, just on that can you imagine if Leinster don't play their internationals or put them on the bench um, and Leinster beat Munster it'd be a the serious a serious blow um uh, to to Munster. I think it's a huge huge game for for Munster um and uh, it's gonna be really fast. It's gonna be fascinating to see how how well I know. I look at uh, Munster going to go full strength. It'd be fascinating to see how Leinster Leinster go um, in terms. of selection. Munster
2: fans will be frothing at the mouths at home at that suggestion, Birch. And like to be fair, I was just gonna say the reality is that the gap did seem to close. A little bit at least in that last game, they were close. Like Munster are right to feel as though they were close, at least close to beating Leinster in a one-off game. And Murray mentions that a little extra quality that Munster need probably to get them over that line, and that was the difference between the two teams in the end. Leinster's try was that little added sprinkling of quality that Munster couldn't produce on the day. But you know, it's like a couple of it's it's a maybe a case of getting a couple of those things right, like. Where on the day it actually just a pass goes to hand, or, or something does happen where there's a little bit of space and a score settles it, you know.
0: That was it, wasn't it, last time? I mean, they missed a couple of shots of goal, and, and again, not to be harsh on someone, but it was that close. And then Lencer had, had that chance to find their moment, and, and they did it. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting one. We'll have another week's build up of Munster Lancer so I can't wait.
2: <laughs> uh, I can't wait either. I have to say, uh, Murray. Chat to us about CVC. Obviously, it was announced today, Thursday, as we record. Four hundred twenty-six million pound. Is it pound or euro? You can correct me there. Uh, investment or in the Six Nations, it's worth about fifty-six million to the IRFU. Seven million initial windfall towards the end of this year. Which, interestingly, like to put it into context, Philip Brown said will kind of fund the IRFU or is enough to fund the IRFU for just over a month and that that does put it into scope how perilous a financial situation the game finds itself in. I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are absolutely up to speed on everything in rugby um, but for plenty of them as well I know many of them friends of mine this might not be the kind of thing that they're scrolling through their 42 app and click into as a story it it might not interest them so can you sort of summarise it from your point of view the benefits of it or how it's going to work, basically.
0: Yeah, so it's a private equity firm buying a share of Six Nations Rugby, a one-seventh share. So essentially, like they're almost a new national union. Um, The other Six Nations retain, obviously, the controlling uh, stake and they make all the rugby decisions, but they're getting CVC on board for their commercial expertise, i.e. to make them more money. They want to become more profitable, get more money from TV revenue and sponsorship. Uh, That's the bottom line. And CVC have a track record of doing that. People will maybe know them from Formula One. Um, So in that sense, yeah, you mentioned the figures there. That's good for the RFU and all the other unions. At a time when they need money, they're saying that this is going to help them, obviously, in this current challenging climate, climate, and then further down the line in terms of investing into their game. Um, And it's absolutely a positive if if unions can make more money and they can invest more into growing the game in that sense. Um, But I suppose people's concern over this has been that around a paywall especially with the six nations and the other competitions which this deal encapsulates it's not just the men's six nations it's the women's six nations under 20 six nations and all the autumn internationals as well so that was kind of bundled into a package last year and cvc are going to kind of drive the commercial sponsorship side of that listen that'll be great for the women's game hopefully because there hasn't even been a sponsor for the six nations as things stand and you would hope that that investment will um, push that side of the game on but I suppose people are mainly worried about a paywall with the Six Nations, which has obviously been free-to-air and as long as people can remember, they can remember tuning into big Six Nations game and that's their main touching point with rugby often. Uh, and that would be my main concern as well. It's inevitable. It's going to happen potentially even next year, 2022. The, the current TV deals are up after this championship and and the tender process is open again. There may be a, a kind of split of free-to-air games and gains behind the paywall, but then you get in a tricky situation of deciding which ones are are still free to air, and if it's a if it's a shite meaningless fixture that's not a uh, involving a contender for the championship, what value is there in, in that on free to air? So, I suppose the unions who still are going to have the majority say in this, um, they've got to consider how potentially damaging it could be to lose some of the eyeballs, or potentially how gainful it is i suppose to to get more money for it um, and increase their revenues in that way um cvc only have a one seven say but they'll only have to get three other unions on board and then that's a majority for for what they do so there's going to be lots of pol- politics involved in this as well um more money into the game is is great but i just would have caution and, and worry about maybe going behind paywall with Six Nations.
2: Yeah, you'd have to say it probably requires caution as well. Like, I've seen a lot of people make the point that because CBC have only one seventh say, technically speaking, that it means that the other six unions or the six actual unions have uh, a greater say in, as CBC have outlined themselves in the competitive side of things and that they won't necessarily interfere with the competition, but also that they will have a deciding say in commercial elements of this deal. And it's, wishful thinking really on behalf of like rugby fans to, to imagine that CVC's influence will only really be one-seventh of this because as you say there'll be lobbying within this group and there'll be so much politics at play that it only takes a, a few phone calls and a little bit of um, dangling the carrot for minds to be swayed one way or the other and I think we have to probably confront the reality or potential or future reality rather that the competition will be behind a paywall I think we've touched upon this in detail on a previous podcast, so I don't think we need to go into it so much now. It will erode this competition's sense of cultural status, like in the sporting landscape in Ireland at least. I think it will be harmful for the growth of the game. But that's not the way individual unions view the sport, really. Again, it's kind of wishful thinking or naivety. At at least this is what I think, uh, that they want to see the game spread across the globe and all these sorts of things. Really, they, they're, I'm sure they would like that. But first and foremost on their agenda is to be able to sustain themselves and to make as much money for their individual units as possible. And moving uh, a Six Nations on to Amazon or moving it to Sky Sports or BT is a really decent solution in, in terms of short-term financial gains and probably long-term sustainability for those unions. So I think that's a, a reality. But that, that brings us then to a kind of a, a wider question or a wider issue for the game, Birch. Not just the Six Nations, but rugby, generally speaking. It's a mess for fans. For anybody listening to this podcast at home who wants to watch rugby, you probably, you need, like, what, four or five subscriptions now if you want to watch, like, pretty much all the top-level competitions. You still can't really watch the French top 14. Um, we saw, say, for example, Super Rugby AU moving to uh, World Rugby's website. It's going to be streamed for free in a lot of territories in Europe, Asia, uh and in, including Ireland, obviously great news because we get to watch Rob Kearney for the Western Force. But when I was looking for, um, their kickoff time against the rebels tomorrow, which is nine forty-five AM Irish time, you know, the way usually with sporting competitions, including sort of, if you want to call them smaller ones, but it may need to be disrespectful. League of Ireland, for example, if if I was to search for Cork city's fixtures, it comes up in a kind of like a Google box at the top of your search results. When I searched, uh, Western force versus rebels, it showed me the result of a game from 2017 like it just feels as though the game is is lagging miles behind stakeholders uh, people involved in these competitions are, are miles behind in terms of actually exposing their competitions to people and people can't afford to be shelling out for six like a lot of people can't afford to be shelling out for six seven different channels to be able to watch their own teams and also to watch the international game so it feels like we're moving further away actually from growing the game from a tv standpoint even if at the moment, this might be the only solution or it might be enough to top up the coffers short-term.
1: Yeah, uh, I actually thought, look, I just read this morning that they get 90 million from ITV and BBC for for the current TV deal, and that's obviously up, um, which sounds like a lot of money. Uh, having said that, the French have to sign a new deal just for the top 14, I think it's 113 million euro uh, a year, so more than the, the Six Nations is worth, obviously, a lot more games, but... Uh, yeah, I, look. The ideal scenario would be we had one kind of central hub to get our rugby, um, and I, I don't see that happening. I, I, I'd imagine, I'd imagine Sky Sports or Amazon will 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 have sold Six Nations next year, and, and it's going to add to it. But I, I think the problem is now COVID has really uh, extenuated the need for cash. So whatever chance we had with the 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 six country saying look at for the for the good of the game we need to be on terrestrial tv i think the covid and the debts that's been accumulated and the, the cash reserves that are dwindling will mean that there, it's going to be a case of whoever pays the most will will have uh, the best rights and and yeah it's not it's not it's not ideal at all but let's just see how it unfolds and and um the, and hopefully we get some kind of compromise where some but at least they some of the six nations or international rugby stays free there
0: you're right Gav. around like fans and their the way they engage or are able to engage with the sport it does still feel like it's young in terms of its professionalism and even simple stuff like that in, te- in terms of the access like you look at american sports obviously and, and the way they do those kind of things it, it's it's next level and and certainly cvc will bring some of that expertise and they'll slap some of that stuff into shape and, and they'll bring a modern touch to it But at the same time, professional like rugby, sorry, as a sport, it's it's relatively small, and like this deal is to is to grow the game. But I think you grow the game by having more people be able to tune into it easily, and sometimes for free to air for those biggest games, because otherwise you're just going to stay where we are right now, and that's where um, unions are are probably worried about their financial situation from year to year, Um, and we don't grow it beyond what five or six countries who can potentially win a world cup and um, that's going to get boring well listen I, I get excited about anything but that's going to get boring within the next few world cups if it's just the same old people over and over again and everyone's looking out for their own self-interest i probably have the same fear as you that within each union there isn't that long-term selfless view of things um but even short-term it would be brilliant for supporters like we did a newsletter about this yesterday for members and i can't i'm blown away by the number of emails getting. We've got back from people. This is their major frustration and gripe with the game. A number of different issues, but CBC have also bought. We should mention into the Pro Fourteen a twenty-eight percent stake and into the Gallagher Premiership at a twenty-seven percent stake. So they have this opportunity, I suppose, to start bundling things together and make it a little bit more straightforward. It's crazy that people can't watch the Top Fourteen, a league with some of the biggest stars. Some of the best rugby and the old stereotypes aren't completely true about it now like watching toulouse is one of the greatest joys in rugby honestly they're they're wonderful in the top 14. Uh, even the top league now has so many star names playing and it, we're probably still away from a, a more general interest in, in that but it, it would be great if there was more access to it all i think of the times we've been down in new zealand and you flick on sky sports new zealand one i think it is now And it's just rugby, 24 hours a day. And they have stuff from all over the world. Now, obviously, the interest level there is very, very high in in comparison to most places. But it shouldn't be that hard to do. It shouldn't be that hard to make it a little bit more easy for for punters. And you're going to have to make decisions, of course. Every sport has multiple broadcasters, I think. But it is really frustrating for fans. and, And I totally get that at the moment.
2: Let's look ahead to brighter horizons or potentially brighter times, uh, Scotland Ireland this weekend. And I'm buzzing for it. I have to say I I know Murray, when you tweeted out the officials yesterday <laughs> as they were announced, the I reaction the reaction to your tweet uh, from a lot of people was one of dismay. I think it just adds to the potential chaos of this game in in a good way. I think it's going to be absolutely spectacular yeah. and I can't wait for it. And, and I don't want to fixate on the on the officials this week. I'm sure they'll be they'll do their best as they always do. Um, yeah. Well, but- no matter,
0: just to say on that, no matter who you, I, I, I've i started doing it in each match week and these officials were appointed months ago, like, you know, and we all just forget that they're in charge. And I started doing it on the match weeks now and there's always someone who replies with the Father Ted gif, oh bollocks, no matter who <laughs> the referee is, <laughs> which is, all it always makes me laugh, but there's always a, a gripe there. And obviously, Poit more recently had that incredible, incredible non-decision around the, the Henderson try when he was TMOing. So hopefully Ireland can count on getting a try back.
2: It's cruel, isn't it, that nobody ever responds positively. Like nobody ever thinks, yeah, oh, he's actually he's actually decent. You just Your mind immediately goes to a time when he's, he's smited you in some way. Uh, I know who would be. Uh, that being said, probably uh, a difficult enough game for them this weekend. Bernard is going to be hammer and tongs both sides. I think it's a fascinating game, I have to say. I think it's a potentially era-defining game, but only for within the context of these two countries. I'm not saying one of them is going to go and take over Europe after this, but it could so easily swing the dynamic between the two countries and how uh, their fortunes against each other have been playing out over the last decade or more. And you've got a reality for Ireland in which, if they don't perform, the pressure comes on Andy Farrell big time and you're going into a game against England looking to avoid coming second last, basically, and being almost a joke. And the, you have a reality for Scotland wherein if they manage to beat Ireland and get over that hump and put behind what happened to them against Wales, they are suddenly a force, you'd imagine. And like that for them, that would be an awful lot of psychological weight to rid themselves of, not only going into the rest of this tournament or, or the France game, say, but I'd say for the next five, six years where they could actually look to start to really challenge for, for this tournament. Whereas if they were to lose to Ireland again, It might send them back to the doldrums for a couple of years. You just don't know. Like, it feels like a real hinge game upon which uh, so much is riding.
1: Absolutely. It's a a great... It's the best weekend, I think, so far in the Six Nations, but obviously uh, England playing France as well. But Scotland... Yeah, I think this is, as you say, massive for Scotland. Uh, Fair play to the SRU. They backed Gregor Townsend after a poor World Cup. Um, He has changed the way they play, and he's brought in a different support staff. He's... He's made a move to shore up their defense, which was horrendously um, porous um, previously. Tandy looks like he's he's done a great job there. And he's he's a very good coach. He's got a you know a, a scrum specialist um, in Peter de Villiers. They've they're more pragmatic in how they play, but yet they still have a nice attacking brand. Um, got a great start against England, and you know we all fancy him to beat Wales. Obviously, the red card maybe changed the course of that game, but haven't said that. Wales before the red card. Wales were actually back getting back into the game, so I don't know if it was a foregone conclusion that, that Scotland would have won. And I know Scotland played some great stuff at fourteen, but I'm not sure how good they are. I mean, England form has obviously been shown to be not as good as we thought it was, and um, uh, so yeah, it, it's it's hard to know. I do think they're better than they were, but I I, I fancy them coming to Dublin in November and they they just didn't show up. Uh, Ireland bullied them. Um and they looked miles away from Ireland and I'm, like I hope Ireland are still are, are still better than them. Um but uh, so I think from uh, I think that's what Ireland will try and do. Um they'll try and squeeze him, they'll try and pressurise Finn Russell and hope he comes up with a couple of errors. Um and you know, they obviously try and target Ali Price as well. Hogg is, is, is playing great, their wings are brilliant, but I don't, I think Ireland will, will try and starve them with the ball and, and um I don't think that'll suit suit so Scotland at all and I do think their front five are still a little bit behind ours um even though they've got some some exciting players I think our front five can do a job on them um and I think we can win if we don't win obviously it's going to be terrible uh for our development and, and the pressure for England will be will be massive but likewise for Scotland I think it'll just completely burst their balloon and I think it will be hard then for for Townsend because they got to go to France obviously uh last game um reschedule a game, I think it'd be hard for him to rebuild again, so it's, it's as you said, it's fascinating.
2: Murray, there has been a lot of revisionism really about that Wales game, but I think on behalf of the Scots, it may be just a case of them trying to make themselves feel better about what happened, uh, like I, I agree with Burner completely in that Wales were growing into that game big time and as we've seen of Wales, throughout history, to be honest, or at least throughout modern history they're they're really hard to beat, you have to properly put them away and there's no guarantee Scotland would have done that 15 on 15 That being said, the England game I I find so interesting from Scotland's point of view. Obviously, we've spoken about it at length, as has everybody over the last month or so. But when you even consider that autumn game to which Bernard alludes, where there was a kind of a collective sense that Scotland were going to come over a force to be reckoned with um, against Ireland. And even thinking back to that first game of Andy Farrell's reign, where if not for a Stuart Hogg drop, Scotland might well have beaten Ireland in Dublin. Scotland flattered to deceive in the autumn against Ireland. Ireland just sort of do what they usually do against Scotland. It felt more like a kind of a Schmidt versus Scotland era game. And then like you look at Scotland in England and I would have genuinely believed, I did genuinely believe that England's pack, England generally speaking would not be, capable of being bullied i actually thought it inconceivable that a team could properly bully them and dominate them up front to the extent that scotland did but what's more remarkable about it is that it was scotland who did it like scotland did to england what ireland have been doing to scotland for the last 10 years and and they turned it around in the space of a few months really like in reality in the space of a few weeks of camp you know it shows how quickly these things can turn and that uh slides and and dips in form are far from terminal but that being said, like, does that mean that we will no longer be able to bully Scotland to the extent that we have over the last few years? Like, do you think Ireland have the capacity, firstly, to bash them up up front anymore?
0: Um, probably not to the extent. I mean, there's a nice collection of individuals there. Rory Sutherland's a guy who's going to be in, in Lions contention, I think. In the back row, you think of Watson and, and even Fagerson in that game against England was unbelievably aggressive and effective and, and won the game line. Um, I think your description of kind of hinge is brilliant for this game in, in a number of circumstances because I think it's so close that it is just going to hinge on a little moment, potentially a decision from Poit, potentially one defender on the fringe of Rook just slipping uh, in concentration bounce of a ball potentially, I genuinely think it is that close, the teams are very evenly matched in my mind, they're both I mean they're not brilliant top three nations in the world they're just probably underneath that tier Um, they're not terrible either um, and regardless of what happens and the circumstance of the game, you're right that it is going to be that hinge moment for for both of them and, and how we perceive it, and maybe that's unfair because it could be decided on the bench of a ball, but if Ireland lose this game, they're staring into that England game trying to really salvage uh, six nations where they could lose four, which would be really poor given where they've got to in the last decade or, or longer even, um, and for Scotland as well, it would just take the momentum out of their revival that they feel they're on um, on the flip side if they beat ireland it, it kind of changes that dynamic i think part of it has been ireland expecting and having the confidence to beat scotland we've mentioned several times that ireland aren't confident against the likes of france the likes of scotland or sorry of, of england uh, in recent years uh, and that's been kind of patent because they keep making errors when they get into tough Positions, But again, Scotland, even at the end of autumn there, it just looked like they expected to win and they scored before and after halftime after Scotland's really good purple patch where they led 9-3 um, and they moved into control there. I think Ireland will probably be approaching this game with a similar mindset that we're better than these these players um, and it's a chance for us to kind of um, put down a marker and, and kick off this kind of Andy Farrell thing and show everyone what we've been talking about in terms of our progress. Um, but it's supposed to be tough. Weather conditions this weekend and um, that muscular side of the game that you're talking about there is going to be really crucial. Both packs of forwards. I don't know how much expansive Roby will see, um, but it's a massive test for the Scottish forwards.
1: Yeah, just just on that, how Wales got back into the game was Maul, line-out Maul. They basically won penalties from further up the field and that that was basically what turned the, the game before the red card. And, and if you're Paul O'Connell... And our mall has looked better and we haven't used it exhaustively, but um, you know, we've we've scored from it, um, our setup looks good, we've we've played off a few. So if you're Paul O'Connell and you're trying to identify how to beat Scotland and the previous regime, you could have you know, there was kinks everywhere, uh, in defensively, whereas their defensive line now is good or physical. But I think that could be our entry that's that's obviously something like, that you would see as a coach and go, Okay, that's that's an area that they showed weakness in and obviously they'll, they'll have worked on it but you know it's a nice couple of clips to show the, the players in terms of look this is going to be our way into the game particularly if conditions are tough um because obviously it's low risk and i think that that could be that could be the Achilles heel that maybe that you know it'll take a, that the we can go after
2: yeah i was going to ask you that actually Bernard, like an entry an entry point for ireland or where do we begin in terms of where where ireland actually assert themselves in this game particularly if there is Party up front. Uh, on the flip side of that, like when, when you look at Scotland's undoubted strengths, how do you combat some of those? Like We know their their attack has been good, I don't want to say consistently, but it's, it has shown signs of real liveliness and uh, and at times coherence over the last couple of years under Townsend. How do you stymie that? But also, is there a means of trying to take Stuart Hogg out of the game? Because like in every game, it seems, he's just an inexorable force and when you consider really the the, um, the way that Ireland kicked the ball, the number of times Ireland kicked the ball, he's probably going to see a lot of it. But is there a way even of strategically trying to avoid that? Is it literally a case of trying to kick to space more rather than raining it down on top of the fullback? Which I know isn't always the intention, yeah, it just happens.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's it's actually a, a kicking game that we already have. And that's probably why we've done well against Scotland is that, you know, if you kick a lot of contestables, um, that takes Stuart hog out of it. I mean, the last thing he wants to be doing is jumping jumping in the air, you know, for a 50-50 ball or a 60-40 ball. He likes to have time. Um and if he has time from teams that kick long, uh he can pick off, you know, slower forwards or even backs. He he's phenomenally uh, good uh with his pace and footwork on on a on an outward line and be able to just burn people. Um so I think that Ireland and that's why maybe Murray will start um is that, you know, if you want to take away their back three, so Darcy Graham, Duan Maer, Short Hogg, all unbelievably dangerous uh, players with ball in hand. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they're all the best in the air, best in the world in the air. It's not, you know, and I think that that's that's how you stop them. Um, it means you, you, you know, their their forwards have to work back to play the second phase off. And if they re- regain it, and it just it makes the game tighter, and particularly if the conditions are bad. Um, that would suit us so like when I when we say all oh, Ireland bully Scotland I don't think physically the Scots will will back off at all but like what I meant was that we find an area where we can dominate them and I think that would be the mall and I think um I think also from a kicking strategy to go contestable rather than kick long um even if you find grass against them uh I still think that they have the, the ability in that back tree to pick you off um so I, I wouldn't be surprised if we go to uh, to contestables a lot a lot more. I don't know what Murray thinks.
0: They also, the Scots have really worked on their kicking game to be fair to them and that's been a kind of hallmark of the last few games is a real maturity and patience with that. I mean, someone like Finn Russell who just, he just wants to play. He's kicked, I think, what, 28 times maybe in the two games. Um, and against England, obviously, that was the really clear tactic to just get the ball down there. With Hogg, he's had this lovely variety to his play. I mean, he's only played the two games, but he's beaten more defenders than anyone in the championship. 14 in two games, six line breaks. Um, But also he's kicked the ball from hand 12 times and he's passed 18. We had this in the piece earlier on, so the stats are fresh in my mind. So they're getting better variety and balance to their game, which was always the challenge. I mean, there was a bit of naivety there maybe with Scotland at times where they kind of overplayed their hand. Um, But the kicking game has been really impressive and it's still an attacking tool. Obviously, Russell is excellent at that. You saw Hogg's try against Wales where he kicks behind off set-piece and pressure is a mistake from Halfpenny. And obviously the Ali Price, that beautiful little assist for Darcy Graham against the Welsh as well. So a couple of illustrations over of there. And, and clearly they've been working hard to get better balance to it. So um, that's also a threat for, for the Irish defence and backfield um, and everyone to be concerned about.
2: Here's another kind of hinge moment then for you, Bernard. If we are to deploy a, a kind of a contestable kicking strategy as would make perfect sense. You, you outlined it well there. Do you go with James Lowe again? Do you think that Jacob Stockdale can potentially be more disruptive in the air? But equally, um, and this is, sorry, provided that Conor Murray starts, which I think he will, uh, but equally on the other side of the ball, when you consider what Murray said there about Scotland improving their own kicking game, who would you rather sort of go in the other way and chasing a ball on Ireland's left wing?
1: Yeah, look, at it. I'm not convinced that Jacob's brilliant... Um... Chasing the uh, contestables either. I he, he got a great one to start the game the other night and then he, he lost a few in the air and and um look I I don't know if he's done enough to be honest to come back in um uh, I think maybe a, maybe a bench option but I know I'd stick with I'd stick with low I'd stick with low we need to find out if low is a is an international we know Stockdale on form is an international winger um and in my opinion. The jury's still out to a certain extent on on James Lowe. um, and I I I'd stick with him now against against Scotland and, and find out a bit more about him, um, and so that's yeah, so it's not purely that I think James Lowe's better than Stockdale. I just think that, um, you know we we've we've given him a couple of starts, uh, in this block, uh, and it'd be great to know at the end of Six Nations is he a viable left winger first, um, or you know Because Keenan's come in now. Like, don't forget we were. Flirting with, obviously, the idea of Stockdale being a full-back. Um, Keenan's come in and, and, and put down a bit of a marker there. So um, I just think it'd be great to know, you know, is it is it Stockdale or James Lowe on, on the wing and are both bottom, of them international quality? Stockdale is, like he is. just he Obviously, he's had some blips, but he is international quality as a finisher. um, And, I, and I, it'd be great to know, is James Lowe? I mean, you know, Eddie Jones has come out and said, oh, only 70% of, this, of his squad are going to the World Cup. I, and that's kind of has to be, you know, in, in Farrell's mind as well, a little bit around who is going to go to the World Cup. But the sooner you know that, the better. Um, and, yeah, I just think James Lowe is still, the question mark is still out there, and and, and hopefully he, he goes and proves it.
2: Murray, just sticking with selection, and I'm taking it as a given that Conor Murray will start, but maybe wrong. Like yourself and Owen Toon were chatting on the members pod, I think two weeks ago, about the reality that Gibson Park, for example, probably deserves the reward of, uh, or deserves to be rewarded for his form like i thought in rome and it comes with the caveat of being italy i know it might have been his best game or his most complete game so do you reward him with a start and particularly when you consider his box kicking actually has been good as well recently
0: mm, definitely yeah he's he's definitely made it more of a, a question and even the continued rise of craig casey adds a bit of pressure as well and it's fantastic that Ireland are in that position um like haven't heard anything on on the team at this stage, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Conor Murray back in there, given what we're talking about the conditions, the pressure. He got a glowing reference from Johnny Sexton yesterday when when he said he's back in training. and It would be brilliant to have him back. Um, and listen, he Conor Murray was was playing some pretty good rugby before he picked up that hamstring injury. Um, I know people are like so many people just want him, and and a lot of the senior players just gone out of the team, but. Uh, you you can't just discount all the good stuff they do and and that just tends to be the case with Conor Murray now even some of the good stuff he doesn't attack yeah he probably doesn't have the the same high tempo he certainly doesn't have the same high tempo as others and and it is frustrating at times when 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 that's not there and, and I know people just philosophically want that more often but there's other ways and means to to winning games and um, so it wouldn't surprise me hugely. that aside though it will be it'll be a settled team because they feel they got a lot out of that Italy game the balance of the pack was really good there was loads of dynamism in the team a lot of defensive threats as well as um punch onto the ball so even with the weak opposition they felt they got a lot out of it uh, and i think we'll see something very similar even with someone like low like he's invested this time in him now um and probably backed him through a couple of tough games and, and wants to see the result of that so it'll be um it'll be along similar lines
2: what about if I could reverse that question to yourself, Bernard, and, and taking into account what Murray is saying as well about the fact that people are really impatient with Conor Murray. I often think it is actually to do with tempo uh, in that they just see a ball moving a little bit more slowly, maybe then his opposite nine, or maybe then the options would be uh, able to do from the bench uh, and just get a little bit fed up with it. Like, But in terms of what Andy Farrell and Mike Catter are actually trying to do with this Ireland team, is that slower tempo a little bit actually at, od- at odds with that? philosophy if you like in that you know we there, there probably is an onus on the players to make more quick decisions uh be that a little bit more expressive take ownership and all of the kind of buzz terms we've heard over the last few weeks but if the ball despite the fact that we have quick rock ball isn't coming out to them that quickly it, it it surely impinges upon their ability to do that a little bit
1: yeah but i i think connor can can adapt to a certain extent. Obviously he's probably not the type of high tempo nine that Gibson Park or, or Craig Casey is, but you don't get to the level he's got to without being able to bring tempo and you know play um you know get the ball away from the breakdown quickly and bring other people into it. I, I just think that he's been pigeonholed to a certain extent by the tactics of the team he's been playing for, i.e. Ireland and, and Munster, um that Munster game is evolving so is he able to play a role in that? hundred percent, he is. So yeah, I just think having a real understanding and the denying to a certain extent, like you know, he if if other people aren't in position or are sure of what they're supposed to do next, you know, denying can look ponderous. Uh, and I think Connor's probably been exposed a little bit because of others' uncertainty. Like like I said about the tens, you know, when Johnny plays, when Johnny plays, Ireland look to be more organised. Down to him being so dominant, but like you shouldn't need your 10 to have to be as dominant as Johnny to be able to have a fluid attacking game or a fluid kick game, etc. It should come from the systems that are in place from training. So, I think if if Ireland are going to play high tempo, um, Connor can certainly play play that style. Uh, It mightn't be as as fast as a Gibson Parker or Craig Casey, but it's certainly. You know, it certainly doesn't mean you couldn't pick him. You know, it just needs to be clear. And I, and if the if the weather conditions are as they are forecast to be, and Ireland they're going to go down that, you know, direct forward dominance mauling box kicking game. Well, then he's the right selection for 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 this for that game plan. And again, that like and this is this was the argument we had a little bit about the French game where we picked Gibson Park and really Burns, two halfbacks who aren't specialists in the kicking game, and we imposed a a kicking strategy you know so um, if we're going to if we're going to go and, and try and outrun Scotland and play high tempo well, then I would be saying pick Gibson Park but uh, you know I, I think that if you look at Scotland and you want to beat them which Ireland will it won't be it won't be free flowing I think that would play into into Scotland's hands so I, I think that's why Murray should play but I also think that if Ireland you know um, if the game opens up and we want to play with tempo and we're sure how we want to play an attack that he's well capable of of service and that there's there's no doubt but he has been pigeonholed as this slow nine who just wants to put his foot on it and box kick but i think that's been mainly down to the tactics of the teams he's been playing for
0: mm. just finally just add on that gav like defending is a massive part of the game it's not just about scoring tries and he's i mean he's probably the best defensive line in the world still in, in my eyes um and he adds a huge amount in, in that sense he's really strong on the tackle he's a really good organizer he's got a good reading of the game um, and that is that's half of it and and that has to be part of the decision making not just your attack which we all obviously get excited about if Gibson Park starts this weekend I think it's great that Ireland can have some assurance there as you say in the last couple of games he's done well and and I don't think there'd be much fear of it now and Stuart Lancaster was really interesting speaking about how he's growing into the mindset of of being a starter and and probably starting to realize his capabilities in that sense which is really positive to hear so there is a there's options there and there's slightly different approaches um but just with murray I, I agree with bernard you can't completely discount what he does in attack as well even if you think last year no one had more assists and obviously the nine always has assists but often i think there were six of them last year often it's really good decision making from conor murray that allows someone to finish off say a passage or, or make an initial line break. Um, he's got a great whip on his pass when, when he's at his best as as well. So um it's a good position to be in that there's a bit of a debate now though.
1: Can, yeah, can I come back in on that? Just the defensive thing is really interesting, Murray, in that like Gibson Park has been probably exposed a little bit on the wing um defensively, and that's that's how Ireland seemed to defend with him um a lot. Now I know he's sometimes in the backfield, but he tries to get back to that left blind wing as much as possible. Connor is generally more comfortable in in the backfield, um. Now maybe that's a high thing with, with contestables, but it'd just be interesting to see, um, if from a like I think if if Gibson Park plays Scotland will definitely try and get back to his wing and, because uh, there has been defensive issues there. We didn't get we got exposed once or twice against Italy, but didn't really hurt us. Um, but if you you know I spoke about Ireland saying oh we can go after the Scotland Mall. if you're Scotland you're saying look we can go after Gibson Park you know, after two phases when he's back on the on, on the wing. And um and that may, may be a deciding factor. Um or, you know, maybe if Connor maybe if Connor plays, they're so comfortable with Connor in the backfield that he stays in the backfield and then you get a wing back on, on that edge, which is obviously a, a different and a, a nicer um edge to it. So yeah, it's gonna be fascinating to see who plays and then obviously how how we try and protect our nines defensively.
2: That's going to be my next question, actually. We, we've identified Ireland's potential entry point into the game as the mall. You've, you've spoken of another there on Scotland side of things. Bernard, are, are there other ways into this game for Scotland-Murray or where would you see them targeting Ireland's weaknesses?
0: Yeah, I, I think they'll, they'll try to use their defence, as Bernard mentioned, which has become more aggressive under Steve Tandy a, as a bit of a weapon. Um, and if we think where Ireland are from that France game, it was a lot of discussion around their attack, around poor decision making, and they put their hands up in that regard and, and probably put a bit of onus on the players. So I think that'll be a massive focus for them is is pressuring those errors from Ireland, pressuring that indecision, um, and probably trying to get back at that that um yeah, that lack of confidence where probably Ireland have been in tough positions. Um so that'll be a fascinating one for me because it is different to what Ireland or Scotland rather have been in the past where you always felt there were opportunities to be had against their defence. It it definitely looks stronger now. It definitely looks more organised and with a better mindset. Simple changes, but it has made a difference. So I'd I'd expect them to put real pressure on Ireland's decision-making.
2: Any other areas for you that Scotland can worm their way into this game, Bernard, before we chat about England-France?
0: Um. Yeah, I I still... I
1: I think if if we allow... If we allow Scotland... uh, Well, obviously, the question mark is around our set-piece D. Um you know how 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 tight that is and, and, and uh sure Townsend would certainly I think like to have a crack off that with a couple of power plays um and the other thing that's questionable about us is is how good we are on the edge defensively so um yeah I think there's definitely little bits that Scotland will have looked at in, in the in our first three games and went yeah there's there's opportunities there I, I I think our defense is still a work in progress I know you know there was some Good line speed, some good aggression against Italy, but like, we have to be able to defend. We have to be able to judge, judge our defense. I think after Scotland and England, um, so I don't think it's by any manner of means locked in. As a, and even that try that Italy scored, I mean it's pretty basic stuff, you know. Um, and yeah, we have to be able to be able to defend consistently for eighty minutes against better teams to be able to say that's not an area of concern.
2: I actually can't wait for this game. I'll get your predictions at the end of the show. We'll just chat about England France to begin with. Uh i stick with yourself and going back to what you were talking about with uh, Fabian Galtier about two or three episodes ago and his attention to detail and his almost sort of sociopathic management uh, approach in that he's, he's probably not necessarily a people's person or he's definitely a, a Fabian's person, but maybe not so much for everybody else. We've probably seen that play out now to an extent in how this uh, COVID thing and uh, postponing the Scotland game has transpired. There are definitely murmurs of discontent coming from France and even when you consider how the news broke that Galtier had gone to his son's match, it was so cle- clearly leaked from within that setup and you were making the point on ortiz's podcast quite rightly that originally it had been pinned on a fitness trainer and clearly somebody within the setup uh, felt aggrieved at that, that he was framed, if you like, as being patient zero suddenly there's reports in Keep and elsewhere that it was in fact Galtier, which again hasn't been confirmed that he was patient zero, but that's how it emerged that he had broken the bubble. Uh, it would seem as though all is not well. And even when you were talking about Galtier a few weeks ago, back in my mind I was thinking, God, it's a long enough road to a World Cup. As much as they have secured this unbelievable coaching team and a brilliant head coach, technical technical head coach, um, it's a, it is a long journey to get to a World Cup with that type of managerial style. And we saw... I'm not saying Joe Schmidt is a, a sociopath, but there were probably elements of burnout, psychological burnout, on behalf of the Ireland players towards the end of his tenure as well at that World Cup. We we know that sometimes these things have shelf lives. So uh, how, how sort of precarious a position do you think France are in at the moment with Galtier? Or do you think this is the kind of thing that, with the result, and particularly result in England... It can be kind of swept under the carpet. Players are able to sort of compartmentalize it as well. In that they're getting to the end of the tournament, they'll be home pretty soon, and potentially with a championship in the in their under their belt, if you like, or under their whatever in their luggage.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important that they do get, maybe not necessarily a result this week, but a, another strong performance where they feel they're on the right track. I think, you know, what's been really noticeable about this team, apart from the fact they've obviously found some talent um, and stuck with that talent, um, you know, in ter- the selection's been a lot more consistent than under under previous coaches, um, but uh, is the the way the team have played for each other and the squad mentality and, the, you know, um, which wasn't there before, you know, they, they seem to look after each other, and I think that was probably a strength in that, you know, maybe maybe the fact that they did, put, I suppose, Pull Fabian up about the fact that he he was blamed could actually help galvanize the squad. Us, you know, I, I, it could be a good thing for them. But you know, certainly for him, I think he has good people around him um, who are who are more personable than than he is, particularly you know Ibanez, uh, uh, Lauren Labise, Um, You know, Sean is tough, but he's he's very fair, um, and I think it's very clear that Bernard Laporte wants Fabian to work. And last, um, but if it, if, it, if it implodes, it'd be so French that they've actually ruined, you know, uh, what was a really positive dynamic through just some in, in, in discipline. But, um, look at the, uh, you know, I, I, I want to see French rugby strong, and, and I want I like this team, I think it could be, you know, uh, it, it could be a team that. Is, is is right up the top end of, of world rugby for the next four or five years and uh, maybe longer if if they if they stick together so I'd like to hope that it's forgotten about well obviously they, they put tougher protocols in place etc but it doesn't jeopardise what looks like an exciting uh, era for for French rugby but if they were to go out this weekend and, and get smashed and it looks like the players aren't playing for the jersey anymore or whatever you know who knows what could happen I mean like a Bernie Laporte will want to back Fabien Galtier but most importantly he'll want France to win the World Cup and if he find, if he feels that there's a um there's an issue or blocker there you know he he'd have to he'd have to deal with it but uh yeah it's, it's so it's so interesting then you have the Eddie Jones has he lost the dressing room what's going on you know uh, slavishly kind of sticking by his his try interested which you know which I I have no issue with but just the, there's, so ma- there's so many different talking points for, for, for this game as there was for Ireland and Scotland.
2: Murray, do you think it is precariously balanced for France? Am I being a little bit dramatic in that? Like, I, and I really just mean to uh, echo Bernard's point there about the fact that if they were to take a heavyish defeat, uh, maybe the wheels could come off. You just don't know with France. I know it's, it sounds a bit cliche, but it also sometimes cliches are, they exist for a reason.
0: <laughs> yeah, I. No, I, I just see, I look at the talent, I, just, I, started, I look at the squad and I just see unbelievable talent um, and it was interesting, um, I was listening to Birch on a podcast recently saying that very often we kind of just overlook the sheer quality in a squad and at the moment they have that, they have the, the best players don't they, they have incredible athletes, even this weekend you look at Vakatawa coming back into the team, an unbelievable um, player, Entamek back, back onto the bench they could change and mix and match. And you saw it in autumn when they were missing their full first team and they and they nearly beat England. They've got this frightening level of, of talent and they've got stuff in order back in France and academies and production lines and non-French player qualification rules, etc. are in much better nick. Um, so I think they're here to stay and I think that's really positive. Um, but in terms of the, the here and now, it is a fascinating dynamic. Um, and that it, it Jones is stuck with... Most of the team, Max Maylands comes in a full-back, a guy who's probably a little bit more expressive and, and can go off script. I think it's really exciting to see him thrown into a fixture of, of this nature. Um, but just two changes up front with Cowan Dickie and, and Ewells coming in. The rest of the Saracens guys get another chance to build a bit more of that fitness and sharpness that they've clearly, clearly been missing. Um, and Jones will feel they're in a brilliant position to finish strongly now by making a statement win and then going over to Dublin. Um, and sown a few more seeds of misery into the Ireland squad. So, yeah, they're they're both in in, in kind of different positions coming into this. France are still on course. Like, you, you know, they've obviously had that game postponed. But if they can refocus um, with those additions coming back, they're in a great place to go and win you know, and win the championship. Albeit Wales will have something to say about that. They're on for win number four in their Grand Slam march against Italy uh, kind of quietly in the background
2: what you say about Jones is interesting where you touch upon it as well Bernard uh, and I'll stick with yourself on this one but exactly the type of scenario that Ireland are seeking to avoid in in beating Scotland avoiding going into that game uh, in Dublin against England uh, like trying to salvage the wreckage really of a season and, and just avoid four defeats an England defeat here which if France can sort of um stick together, remain united and so on, is actually probably likely. And they're in the exact same boat, coming to Dublin. They're avoiding a a really embarrassing tournament. So do you think there actually is evidence, if you like, of the Jones thing reaching its natural conclusion, or is this just another occasion on which they're sort of playing possum as they have done a couple of times over the last four or five years?
1: Yeah, look, I think he was badly affected round one by... By the form of the of the Saracens players, but they're players who are world class, who have done it for club and country, and their age profile would suggest that there's lots more good rugby in them. So, um, I can totally understand why he's why he picked them round one because I'm I'm sure it wasn't obvious that how much shy they were. Um, let's be honest, uh, they had an edge in terms of their kicking game, and Scotland came and often you see that round one where that's your best chance to kind of develop a a game plan uniquely for that opposition and, and prep because you have two weeks prep um, uh, to go into it as a focus on England there was a lot of emotion around it there was no home crowd etc etc so Scotland went and uh, and exposed some some weaknesses the, the Welsh game the Welsh game you know there's obviously 14 points that's that probably shouldn't have been awarded and England seemed to panic and and they lost their discipline completely, and that can sometimes happen to even the most experienced teams when they when they just feel that they're being, um, yeah, you know, ridden, ridden, uh, <laughs> ridden up and down the field, and uh, you overplay then, and and, and there were some harsh calls as well for other for other penalties, particularly against Atosj, a few very marginal ones. So, and that game went out of control. Actually, within that game, I thought they played some of their best attack um, that we've seen for the last year and a half, and they have probably. It's actually probably forced Eddie Jones into evolving, um, and trying to build, find the next trend or the next way ahead, and and they did that with that, with that thirty seconds of power. If we haven't gone forward, kick and kick well, um, and that seemed other teams seem to have copped on to that and, and, and found ways of counteracting that. So I think now, they will, go full steam ahead um, in terms of this evolution, which. The bits we saw against Wales was was really exciting, and I thought I thought Slade was was phenomenal. I think Slade could have played himself into onto a, a Lions tour. He was so effective, and if they go and add to that again this week, uh, and again against Ireland, you know, next year they they you know they could be back as 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 the, as the champions because they have unbelievable talent like like France have. So um, I don't think it's the end of Eddie Jones. I think um, the players believe in him. He's been loyal to this group, and and they'll see see a need to, to repay that and, and the more minutes like like some Mako and Billy get into their legs on Farrell, I mean they're only going to be stronger now. This is effectively be like having had a pre season with two or three friendies and you know then you're you're ready to go in round in round two and they'll hit their straps now in round four and five. So um yeah and I think it's actually England playing with more variety could be could be an even more daunting cup, uh, uh opposition than what we were used to.
2: Give me your prediction in that one, Birch, England, France, and then I'll come back around for Scotland, Ireland.
1: Yeah, I think England, England by five.
2: Murray, England or France?
0: I'll just do my three now, to save you asking me again. Um, I'll go England and Ireland and Wales to win this weekend.
2: How do Ireland win it, Murray? By how many, roughly?
0: Like real narrow, real narrow. I, I really do think it's going to come down to a, hopefully a late bit of drama, Um and I, I, that could go either way, but I think Ireland just to, to get over the line two or three points.
2: Scotland or Ireland for yourself, Birch.
1: Yeah, I'm going. I'm going Ireland by by a penalty, three points, and obviously Wales to win bonus.
2: Smashing! Love to finish a pod on a high note, as always. Uh, well, not as always, but as has been the case recently, at least. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to keep my prediction to myself this week (laughs) Uh, thank you to everybody at home for tuning in and for all of the 42 members uh, for your questions in the members rugby whatsapp group membersthe 42e if you want to sign up there support our independent sports journalism get kind of more access to the pod and steer its coverage and so on we really appreciate everybody on that side of things Uh, this podcast was brought to you in association with William Hill remember to gamble responsibly and visit dunlui.net for more information on that enjoy the rugby over the Weekend and we will be back post-match over the weekend for the 42 members Monday morning as well with Murray Kinsler and Owen Toulon and then next Thursday in this regular slot for non-members and members alike until then mind yourselves take it easy
0: I don't think we've met before but I'm the referee on this
2: field Leinster could have me five mil a year I wouldn't go <laughs> it is Ruby, Ruby, weekly in the reverse pass